Welcome to the Ward Zero podcast, covering the civic issues you most want to talk about. You are now entering Ward Zero. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 4 of the Ward Zero podcast. My name is Esmahan Razabi, and today I'm joined by Darren Krauss and Jeremy Zhao. We want to begin with a land acknowledgement. Um, in the spirit of reconciliation, we acknowledge that we live, work, and record this podcast on the traditional territories of the Blackfoot Confederacy, including the Siksika, the Kainai, and the Pikani, the Sutina, the Stony Nakoda Nations, the Métis Nation Region 3, and all people who make their homes in the, in the Treaty 7 region of Southern Alberta. In this episode, we are going to be talking about the Beltline protests and the uh, aftermath of the protests, including what's happened with council, what's happened with the police chief, what's happening with the police commission. Um, So it's going to be an entire episode devoted to that. But before we get into that, we are going to talk about a couple of hot takes, and I'm going to turn it over to Jeremy Zhao for those. Esmahan, you're supposed to say they're super fun hot takes because it's going to be pretty serious stuff with the belt line. But okay. Jeremy, take it away. <laughs> I should have made a, I should have made a bird joke actually. Like they're, I don't know. <laughs> I can't think of it right now, but something, something bird joke, Jeremy. I'm not going to talk about birds. I'm going to talk about election, not related to Brian Jean, but the APEGA election. So every year, the engineers and geoscientists in Alberta actually vote on their, you know, respective council and president. This is an election that usually even within the engineering circle, we really don't care about. It's not something that's spectacular. There's no parties. And I guess if you don't know the context, you know, engineers and geoscientists, we have a self-governing group uh, it's kind of legislated and allows us to kind of regulate the members, ensure that, you know, engineers aren't blowing up bridges and, and causing buildings to fall down, you know, in the PEGA's eyes, this is very important, but, you know, for a lot of members, including myself, you know, guilty as charged, it's very hard for us to get motivated, but it is something I wanted to highlight is that, you know, we do have something like this within the technical circle it's not talked about a lot. Sometimes there's like some like juicy controversy that happens, but usually it's pretty vanilla, pretty boring. And one of the interesting things that I will note is that sometimes a PEGA will endorse candidates. It's supposed to be like kind of open for anybody who has enough signatures and, and credentials, but then, you know, a PEGA goes ahead and, and they endorse certain candidates and other candidates don't get endorsed. So it's very kind of a weird, you know, apathetic election that happens. I've never seen it reported in the news. It's just probably not juicy enough, you know, for for the live wires and sprawls of the world to comment on. But I, I wanted to bring that up because I see it every year. And nobody cares. I have so many questions from this. Um, for, first of all, what was the vote turnout? So I have it up right now. It's 14%. I thought it was 8%, but usually it, it never goes, you know, that much higher and it's online. Wow. So Jeremy, I have to take offense to the shot that you took of both myself and, and the sprawl, um, not caring about it, I guess. Tell us though, why should we care? <laughs> I, I think, you know, in Canada in particular, each province has their own little uh, 
you know, regulatory board, I guess, that governs and regulates its members. It's to ensure that the, the caliber and quality of engineers that we produce and, and register in the province actually do a competent job. You know, there are, if you go on their website, they have disciplinary case studies and stuff like that, where engineers overlook or, or are, you know, not responsible enough to do some of the work and you know it can cause things to fail right because if if you're if you're trusting us with you know building codes with the construction of you know giant high rises and for whatever reason it's it's not working out then you have serious issues and the repercussions you know in very big cases can be uh, devastating as well there's a certain part of me that is is regretting asking why it was important. <laughs> you know what? I was okay. So when I saw a pega in the show notes, I thought that Jeremy, you were going to talk about the women international Women's Day controversy, and then oh, I, like, oh, like that's why it's important because you have people who are <laughs> who are talking about like no, you know, the lack of um, gender representation in the profession and they're having a man do it. So I thought, do, okay, do you want to talk about that? Do you want to talk about really, that? No. <laughs> but, um, you know, whoever made that decision probably needs to give their heads a bit of a shake. And All I think right, they so still kind of defended it at the end. They were they very adamant of that. They didn't do anything wrong within the bigger context of they what were. was happening. It's it's so good to be able to talk about engineering and whatnot on the show. You're just making fun of me. I know it's no, it's a (laughs) a breath of fresh air from our typical boring vanilla fair of municipal politics. So I'm good. Uh, Speaking of other things that will put people in a flap, ha! But um, this official bird thing, you know, so. Here's my hot take. And my hot take is a really quick hot take. Team Magpie, how can you not choose the Magpie over some of these others? Blue Jays, Toronto, Chickadee, you know what? Cute bird, but not really cool. And the Northern Flicker, I I mean, come on, people. That thing just rat-a-tat-tats on anything that's wood on your house. The Magpie does so many good things. It's so smart. It's industrious. And I have an affinity to it because Magpies are very independent. Okay, but they're also like vicious, crazy creatures that like, <laughs> I think I, I ran into them um, around Princess Island a few weeks ago, killing something. They are constantly outside my window fighting with each other. They're not really the most, I don't know, when you think like Calgary hospitality, I don't think magpie. Magpie is more like angry, smart, but angry. Smart, but angry. Okay. Anyways, you know what? So, so the other thing that I'll say about this, this is, this is my second hot take on it. But when counselor Courtney Penner brought this up, I was actually really thankful that this was coming up because what this city needs right now, especially given some of the conversation that we're going to have is something fun like this. I know that it's a part to be included in the bird friendly city and whatnot, but still i mean we yet yesterday at city hall all of us reporters are talking about it we're joking about it the councillors have birds stuffed birds right in front of their their council spots it was actually really nice to to tell a good fun story 
for once. Uh, so I think that Calgarians are really latching onto it and that's a good thing right now. It is a great, um, a great notice of motion. I think it'll be an exciting, uh, an exciting competition. I hope to see campaigns in favor of every bird, but I will say as someone who grew up in Toronto, like, come on, let's not pick the blue Jay. Like let's be our own city. <laughs> okay. No blue Jays. That's, that's exactly. my, like, that's my red line. So, uh, Councillor Jasmine Mian did say, gosh, I can't remember if this was on or off the record, but I'll just say it anyways. <laughs> there is some concern that there is a pack forming around one of the birds. Uh, I just can't remember which one. It, it might be the red-breasted nuthatch. It might be the northern flicker. I, I don't know. Uh, but definitely worth a live wire Calgary investigation. Yeah, where's that dark money going? Why did <laughs> First of all, I had to Google the red hatch. Is that even what it's called? Red hatch? Red breasted nut hatch. <laughs> glad you didn't glad you didn't Google the red hatch. Who knows what the hell would have called? <laughs> is, is that a card in Wingspan? Is there like a, a, a... <laughs> there is no card for the red hatch in Wingspan? Okay, I don't think I get it. <laughs> all I will say is campaigns for all these birds Darren you can lead the magpie one but I will say that like think long and hard about that choice (laughs) okay so we are going to get into the rest of the show and as I mentioned earlier we're going to be talking about the Beltline protests. These protests have actually been, just to give a bit of context, they've actually been going on for about two years, but I think that it became quite evident what was happening in light of the quote unquote, because I I just want to make sure nobody actually thinks that these are freedom convoys. They're quote unquote freedom convoy that, you know, went to Ottawa a few weeks ago, maybe over a month ago. Now they started, I think, calling 17th Avenue Freedom Mile, a reference to Red Mile um, for, you know, the sort of uh, flames hockey celebrations that take place there. And so because of the presence of trucks and stuff and all the honking, they became disruptive in a way that they they were before, but you know, this took the disruption to the next level. So for the last few weeks, um, counter protests have risen up against against the convoy in the Beltline. The, the counter protests have really been made up of belt, belt, Beltline residents who are fed up of hearing honking all day on Saturday. They're fed up of not being able to access businesses on the city. Um, they're just fed up of feeling like they're trapped inside their homes. This Saturday, this past Saturday, we had a clash, I would say, between counter protests and police officers. There was a lot of video that went out where police officers were shown to be using their bikes to physically push back against counter protesters. And you saw a lot of the counter protesters go out onto Twitter and talk about the level of force used against them. Um, You know, I'm recalling one I saw where someone was talking about how His wife was pretty banged up and that trust had been broken with the police. And there were just all kinds of messages like that. The videos I thought were pretty, pretty jarring. So that happened on Saturday, quite a bit of online action all over the weekend. And then on Monday, back to the work week, we saw a few things happen. One was, Darren, I believe you spoke with both Mayor Gondek and Councillor Walcott about the protests. Yeah, I did. So here's a little bit of audio on how they saw the past weekend roll out. 
I think this argument that a video doesn't tell the whole story um, holds weight. There's no video that ever tells the whole story of anything. There's always context that we are missing. But I can tell you that I was there, and I have seen what I have seen on the videos as well. And as things started to get incredibly tense, the police had to make a quick decision, and that's when the shouts of move and the bicycles came into play to shove people into a corral, if you will, it can be argued that it was for the safety of the residents. It can be argued that it was to allow the protesters to move through. Take whichever argument you wish, but any time you have to slam a bike into a resident, you need to reconsider the methods that you're using to exercise crowd control. I think that those are, you know, really interesting comments from Mayor Gondek, and I, I want to hone in on, on a few things. One is this idea, and I saw a lot of this, that, you know, yeah, the video doesn't tell the whole story. But I think it's really important for us to put ourselves in the, you know, in the shoes of the Beltline residents who were out there counter protest protesting. And that is they've been trapped in, inside their homes for the last I don't know how many weeks, even longer than that. Um, they haven't really seen the police doing anything. And the police has to be aware that there is a lack of trust in police around this issue. And that is, you know, that goes back years and years and years um, because of uh, issues around police and racialized communities. But also it goes back just a few weeks because when we were seeing pictures and images out of Ottawa with the Freedom Convoy, we were seeing a lot of police acting buddy-buddy with these, with these um, you know, convoy folks. We were seeing you know, people taking photos together, people giving joy rides to Freedom Convoy folks. And so that in itself created an, an, an even additional atmosphere of lack of trust. And then to see, you know, there was a small group of counter protesters. They seem to be peaceful. They seem to be just there defending their community. And to see them being slammed into with bikes while this other giant group is going, going by totally unimpeded uh, and continues to do whatever it is that they do every Saturday. The image that that creates, the sort of injustice, the feeling of injustice that that perpetuates, I think is extremely, extremely strong. And, you know, you can you can say, well, it was crowd control. But I think when what people will say is like, well, you know, there's a, there's a bigger crowd that's been going off and doing their own thing. Um, there seem to be no consequences for their behavior. They've been putting They've been shutting businesses down every Saturday. They've been trapping residents inside their homes. They've been making people feel unsafe. I saw that there were like posters around like white supremacy and stuff. There have been flags that convey that kind of imagery. And I, I want to like stress that if you are a non-white person and you are looking outside your window and you're seeing flags that are like that, you're seeing people who are okay to stand with Nazi flags in other parts of the country, people who are associating themselves with people who talk about pure bloodlines and all this kind of like racist, anti-Semitic, horrific stuff. You don't feel safe seeing a street full of people like that every Saturday. That's not okay. And that, and to live in a diversity, I just learned actually that Calgary is the third most diverse city in this country. The Beltline is a particularly diverse community and to have it like be taken over by people who are antithetical to that. And then for the police you know, to seemingly be against in a, in a violent way, or I should say in a physical way, maybe that's more accurate, uh, against these like the small group of counter protesters, that is a really powerful video and that's going to haunt them for a while. A couple of things that you had mentioned there, Esmahan, uh, this has been going on for two years and, and you said it at the outset of the show as well. 
And while I have no doubt that that's the case, and I have no doubt that like, that the frustration is just boiling over. I, I don't live in the Beltline, so, so I don't know. I only had to listen to a video from one of the events to, to just be frustrated about this. But I guess that, the, that raises the first question for me. The first question is, why did it go on for two years? And, and I don't think that that can be laid solely at the feet of the Calgary police. Yes, we can certainly take issue with their force, which, by the way, the one video that Global Calgary played ad nauseum in their interview with the chief this morning was a particularly violent one. I'm not afraid to use the word violent because because the violent is, is more of a descriptive word for me rather than than actually labeling something a certain way. The other thing that I want to bring in here, and, and I'm sure that this will be a point of conflict for a lot of people and, and that is, I want you to think for a moment about what the outcome would have been had the police not been there, had the police not used their bikes. And yes, they had to forcefully move the counter protesters. But had they not done that, the outcome could have been substantially worse. And then we would have been talking about real issues with people being hurt, injured, potentially somebody dying in a situation like that as the as the violence ramped up. So while I certainly do not condone how the police had to do it, I mean, you heard from the mayor's comments there that the police had to act very quickly. And when they are acting quickly in those situations, they have to use the means that are necessary. Um, and they had their bikes. I, again, the one video I saw, it was particularly violent, the way that the bike was like rammed into somebody. My concern is, is that we're looking at this from a very, very specific lens that we, we despise what the police stand for. Therefore, any opportunity that we have to throw stones at them in the way that they're handling this, we're going to do that. We're going to lay it all at the feet of police. As you mentioned, these have been going on for two years. Something should have been done if they were illegal, just like every other festival or protest in the city. They should have been forced to apply for permits. They should have been forced to abide by the rules of, of their route. But it's the failures all along this, this whole thing that have led us to this point. And now the police are taking the brunt of it because they had to take quick action in a situation. Darren, you know, right before the show started, and even a couple of days uh, prior, you know, we, we, we've been talking about this and, you know, even, even the fact that, you know, Esmahan is going to bring up certain points about racialized communities, how we view certain things. The immediate thought that popped into my head was, well, we're going to, you know, Esmahan and I are going to get backlash for this, you know, just because we're, we're trying to tell our narrative. We're trying to tell our concerns as people of color of how we view what we're seeing in the Beltline. And it's not just restricted to the Beltline. It's, it's what I'm seeing in Ottawa. It's what I'm seeing here and reading about and talking to other people in Victoria, for example, about how people that look like me view these things. I bet our conversations, you know, with my own circle of friends and family are very different than, you know, other groups and how they view these protests. We do see it from that racial lens because, you know, at least for myself, it's, it's impacted me in terms of how COVID has 
you know, change the the viewpoints of certain groups or people in in their views of you know how how Asians have just caused COVID and have caused a lot of grief for them have have been an inconvenience, and maybe that's emotion, maybe that's you know something I'm ignorant to, but I you know I feel like people like myself, people like as as Mahan, we're trying to tell our story, and we just feel like. Every time we speak up a little bit more, try to break that social fabric or whatever you want to call it, we're we're playing the race card. We're doing all these things, you know, just to just to to cause ruckus. We don't understand, you know, the 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 freedom fighters and their opinions. Well, you know what, you know, I I this is getting very emotional, but like you go visit, you know, things like um, there was a Chinese Canadian museum that was just set up in Victoria talking about the past of uh, Chinese people immigrating into Canada. You know, it took hundreds of years for our, the federal government to issue an apology for the head tax and for, for things that we were discriminated against. And we didn't, we didn't have the opportunity or the ability to just go out on the streets and protest and, and get our way within a few weeks. You know, we waited decades. And now here we are listening to a bunch of people who have much more privilege than my ancestors did. And, and they kind of seem to be getting their way. You know, the mandates are lifting, yet they're still out protesting. And for, you know, at least in my perspective, it's something much deeper than freedom. And at least that's my opinion. I don't want I don't want to blanket it on on the Chinese people as a whole or, or visible minorities as a, but that's my opinion. And that's how I've been feeling for you know the better part of the past two years is 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 my own bubbling up. And but I don't get to go out and 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 just break rules and bylaws like on a whim. There's so much you said there, Jeremy, that I think is so important. And I'm gonna tie it into to a few things that you said too, Darren, because I think that the police have to realize that this public perception around them is entirely of their own making. And like, that sounds harsh, but I remember, you know, a few years ago when Black Lives Matter was just starting out as a movement. And um, this was, it was in Toronto where there was a real flashpoint around this because I think, I think it was something around the police wanting to march in their uniforms at the pride parade. And, you know, Black Lives Matter, some folks like went in and stopped the pride parade. And there was like a bit of like a, oh my God, like the police are with us. They're on our side. Why is Black Lives Matter doing this? And then over the last few years, the sort of um, treatment of of racialized people by police by and large as an institution has gotten more and more, um, more and more coverage. And it's really built up. And I think that the Ottawa convoy was a real moment for people because the entire city of Ottawa, Ottawa is a white city, let's be real, was held hostage by this group of people that had flags and paraphernalia that were insulting to so many people, not just to racialized communities, right? They were peeing on the war memorial. They were threatening to attack the prime minister. Like they were doing these things that went, that The harm was not just directed at racialized communities anymore. And the police were seen to be either ineffectual at best and at worst to even be siding with the protesters. And, you know, um, I was chatting with someone today who said that her 90 year old mother 
uh, no, maybe 70 year old mother. I should get that right. 70 year old mother in a suburb of Toronto was like, what is the point of the police anymore? And to your point, Darren, about like, you know, what would have happened if the police would have been there, wouldn't have been there, it would have been unsafe. But I think tying into what Jeremy said, there are lots of communities that feel unsafe because the police are there. And so it's not that it's not that, the, you know, the police being there is automatically seen as a de-escalation. In fact, I think there's an argument that could be made and that I would make that the way that the police acted on Saturday was escalating a situation, was inflaming what was already on the ground. And by being violent against people who were part of the counter protest, people who are, again, like just part of their community. I saw one video of like a bike being pushed into someone with a walker. That's like egregious behavior. Like what is what can you say or or how can you possibly defend behavior like that? And then I know, I know we were going to kind of bring this up, but then to have the chief of police accuse some of the counter protesters of being like professional protesters and like, you know, say that the local counselor was like, and, um, and other leaders were like unhelpful, or I, I don't have it up exactly to me, that was like, just not understanding their role in the situation at all. And then not understanding that the fact that you have, you know, political leaders in the city speaking out on behalf of their residents who feel aggrieved is actually important and to dismiss it and to like, say that they make the force, you know, police members feel demoralized. Well, you know, like, I'm sorry to those police members who feel demoralized, but people are upset with your institution for a reason. And there needs to be a lot of reflection done on what needs to happen with the police so that they're not just an institution that make a certain percentage of our population feel safe, but so that they actually are there to be responsive to this, like the collective to the collective society, whether they are black, whether they are indigenous or whether they are white. And that's not what they're seen to be doing right now. You know, to some degree, we're talking a little bit about outcomes here. Councillor Courtney Walcott, who is the Ward 8 councillor, representative for the area, talked a little bit about outcomes after the Saturday events. Uh, To be clear, it's about the outcomes, right? The outcomes that we've heard over and over again was about we wanted to ensure that nonviolence was the outcome. That's the story that we've known uh, from Calgary Police Service as a means of their protest enforcement strategy. And this weekend, if that strategy was was it that we are trying to ensure that there is no violence. The fact that we ever found ourselves in a position in which police officers had to use even any degree of force against residents to clear the way by slamming bikes into their chest, then the outcome of nonviolence, it didn't work. And there's, I think, no shame in actually just being very clear that the tactics that were employed are not suitable for the context that we are now seeing on the streets after three weeks of escalating conflict. I'm going to go right to Chief Newfeld, and uh, because we had talked about how he defended the actions, I'm just going to play a quick clip here as well, uh, if you're okay with that, Esmahan. What resulted was two groups coming together in opposing directions on 17th Avenue at around 8th Street in what I would call somewhat of a standoff situation. In response to this, officers on the ground attempted secondary negotiations again with both groups while our mountain bike unit worked to keep the two growing crowds separate from one another. Over the course of nearly an hour, the groups were stationary and they remained so at that location. Some members of the group ended up actually moving around off of 17th Avenue and coming around behind the opposing protest group, which certainly increased the potential for hostility. 
During the time, officers on the ground and the command team did notice an increase in hostilities from both sides of what was really a stationary protest over an extended period of time. Not a tenable situation. Officers reported seeing several altercations between the two groups and had to take quick action to prevent escalation, which, without their intervention, was, in their view, inevitable. In essence, one group was determined to block the path of the other and hold their ground. The other group was determined to pass by, and neither group was willing to compromise. Officers were managing what was a large crowd on a busy Saturday afternoon along 17th Avenue with increasing tensions. What became clear to the incident commanders in charge of the protest for that day was that the stalemate was increasing public safety risk and needed to be resolved. The situation was such that officers were not going to be able to maintain the peace and order without cre creating what I'll call a pressure relief valve of a tense situation. Uh, once again, like I, I mean, I think that the chief is defending something that is indefensible. The way that those bikes were slammed into counter protesters is just not acceptable. I think, you know, the, the clip that you played of Councillor Walcott saying that, you know, the outcome is supposed to be nonviolence. And yet you kind of have police performing a form of violence against these counter protesters. So, you know, was the outcome achieved? No, it wasn't. Um, and then my question too is like, I've been involved in creating protests around the city. I have dealt with the police myself. And I, I just really wonder like if the way that my interactions have been where, you know, we sort of had to talk about roots where we had to get buy-in from them where we were told like, okay, like, yeah, this is kind of the amount of time that you guys can do. You know, if you're, if you're going beyond this, then we have to talk about where the, the, the money for like, um, overtime is coming from and stuff like those were the kinds of like, um, questions that we had to answer as like protest groups. And so where are these questions and how are they being asked to these convoy folks? Like, are they also consulting with the police en route? You know, um, they should be. Like, why is it that 17th, which we've established is such a disruptive place, is still being selected as, as the route? Um, don't the police have the ability to kind of be like, no, like we're moving it here now? Um, I, I don't understand how that's not the case. And then, I mean, just last year, I think it was about a year ago, we saw, you know, the the pro-Palestinian was like, it wasn't like a walk, walking protest. It was driving. And like the, the number, I think it was like hundreds of tickets or something that were issued to people who are participating in that. So there is clearly a method of enforcement slash discouragement of, you know, folks like these convoy folks that the police have as a, as an, as an action tool that they can use. And yet we are, we are not seeing any of this. And I mean, these protests have been, um, have been going on for weeks and weeks and weeks, uh, for years really. But I mean, I think again, like, I think the sort of protest coming out of the Ottawa convoy has been slightly different. So I, I don't know. I, I just think that the, the approach that the chief is taking to defend like the conduct of the police is assuming that we don't understand that there are alternate ways that this can hold that this can be resolved that there is like not dialogue between the police and the protesters beforehand so that they can create a route that is less disruptive i don't think that any of us are i don't think that anyone is you know i saw that some folks are like well you're like telling people they're not allowed to protest and that's um that's going against their charter rights no one's saying you can't protest but no one no one else is saying that there aren't ways that you can like 
as a police force, ticket people, change their routes. You know, I think I saw can't remember who it was, but they were saying that the amount of like overtime wages that have been paid because of these protests is like significant. And so, I mean, I remember being told that like, if our protest was to go super long, there would be a discussion around who's on the foot for that bill. And that scared like the living daylights out of us. So I don't know, has that discussion been had? I don't, I don't think it has. What you mentioned about uh, not only the cost, because the chief brought that up as well, um, but he did mention because they're trying to create or they're trying to allow for Section 2 rights of the charter, which is the the ability to peacefully assemble. But he did say that they're, they can actually exercise uh, a certain part of it that allows them to restrict the assembly, their, their right to protest. And I think that may be what they're looking at now. Just kind of latching on to kind of what Esmahan's been going through with organizing a protest and the, the, the details, I guess, or the behind the scenes, you know, interactions that occur. It's like, if you don't look a certain way, if you don't, if, if you're, I guess, the, the theme of your protest is, is kind of, you know, what is not normal or, or different. It's like the expectation for people like us is heightened. Like we have to go the extra mile to ensure not only the safety of the people who are protesting, but the way we do it, we have to be the still model minority, the model citizen. It's like for, for most of us vaccinating, you know, getting our, our double vax and our booster is not enough, you know, respecting the bylaws that are in place. It's not enough. You have to be a certain, you know, demographic in order to get your way. It's like when I came back to Calgary and I saw the, the people, the protest and their ability to just to go on Memorial and have, and being escorted along. I was like, well, that's super ridiculous. Right. Like I remember when we shut down Memorial just to, you know, have a day of, you know, uh, cycling or pedestrian activity. That was like a, a whole, my understanding is that's a whole different process in order to just to even get to that point. But here we are, you know, if you give a certain message or a certain right to protest, you can just go to Memorial and just, just walk along without any, any regard for for anything and i just feel like certain groups that look like me that maybe have political values that are aligned like me have to go all the way like as perfect as possible in order to execute the same things that we're seeing on the beltline protests like we there's a certain expectation for us and then there's a different expectation for the protests that are happening right on the beltline So we've talked a lot about the police, but city council had a meeting on Tuesday. Uh, there was the protests came up and there was a vote around sending a letter to the police there. I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of chat about the role that city council needs to be playing here. We heard in the clip that you played Darren from mayor Gondek saying that, you know, the actions of city council are, are actually quite limited. We can't uh, we being the, the council cannot direct the police. Um, we can't direct the police commission. I, I don't know about you both, but I've had a lot of discussions with friends who are like, who are the police accountable to in the city of Calgary? Who actually directs them? Like, what is council doing? What can council do? And Darren, I'm wondering if you can shed some light on that for us. 
Who are the police accountable to? Are they accountable to anyone? (laughs) The police are accountable to the police commission. Through that, the city of Calgary has two representatives, uh, Councillor John Carlo Carra and Councillor Courtney Walcott. They're the two representatives. There are public members as well. But generally speaking, that's, that's who the police are accountable to in general. Of course, the Solicitor General as well and Justice Minister. So that's where the lines are a little bit blurred in a sense is because even though City Council pays for the police service and, uh, you know, you would think that that through that, much like other groups, whether it's the fire department, whether it's the Calgary Transit, there there would be some sort of direction that would be enabled from the city. Uh, But that's actually not the case. The city does have its own bylaw officers and they do have their own peace officers as well that can enforce some of the municipal bylaws, which is, I think, where a lot of people are headed. But the mayor had said, actually, and she said uh, a number of times, without the police support, they can't really do it against a big crowd. Let me actually play you a clip because somebody asked, what sort of things can the city do in these cases? And here is the mayor's response. So council has been taking action on this for a number of months. The problem is the action we can take is incredibly limited. We don't have the ability to direct the police service. We do not have the ability to direct the police commission. Uh, We have limited ability to push our bylaw officers to enforce something without the support of the police service. So we are in a really tough spot as a council. That's the situation that they're in right now. And that's why they wanted to write the letter so that they could clarify the roles and that the city was, was the advocate for the residents of the Beltline, because of course they represent all citizens of Calgary. Their job is to say, hey, this is not good enough. We need you to do something more. We need you to have a plan to do something more. So I think that's generally speaking what the letter that was sent was all about. Um, I I actually asked the mayor, um, you, you know, it's somewhat related to my comments that I made earlier in the show here. I asked the mayor, this is just this is a letter. What sort of impact do you expect it to have? And why is it now after two years or these recent protests, why now do you have to tell the CPC what is happening? They don't live in a bubble here. They know what's going on. Why is this the action that you, that you have to take? And so, I mean, we're at this situation with the letter, the police chief has has responded and uh, there's going to be more action that'll come this week, but we'll talk about that in a bit. But for me, I, I don't actually really know what this letter really does without the police actually getting involved. And, and when, just to add, when I talked with Peter Oliver, he said, look, the police have the resources to do these things. And this begins and ends with the police ability to do, as you had said, Esmahan, which is enforce some of the bylaws, ticket the cars. They have the resources to put a stop to this. And right now they're not doing that. What I did, what I will say is that I think that Mayor Gondek, the fact that she was at the counter protest, um, the fact that Councillor Walcott was at the counter protest, um, you know, some of the tweet threads that I saw coming from both of them, the letter, these are all really good signals. But I, I do think that that question around police accountability is one that um, we as a society are asking a lot more seriously. 
And I'm, I'm glad that you went into this about the police commission, Darren, but I think that a lot of people are asking, or at least a lot of the conversations that I'm seeing happening are like, wow, like how can it be that, you know, council can only send a letter to the police? Like who ultimately has authority here? And once again, I think that these like discussions are not happening in isolation. We did see, for example, the Lethbridge police surveilling uh, MLA Shannon Phillips. And, you know, the province had to get involved there. Um, It's been like a really acrimonious situation where, you know, the UCP and the NDP are united and like trying to get some, um, some answers from the Lethbridge police. And so I guess my broader point is that like, I don't think that people really realize that there was that separation between council and the police and that the role of council to be out there and to be challenging the police, I think is important or to be, um, you know, sort of uh, like doing things like releasing this letter is important, but there's going to be a point where people, and I think we've reached that point where people want action. So I know that there's a police commission meeting happening on Friday. I think that was just recently released. (laughs) Uh, You scoop me at my own job, Esmahan. It was, uh, it happened just before we got on. I saw, I saw that it's, um, it's happening. And I attended the last police commission meeting where it was about the shooting that happened of the black man in forest lawn. And I will say that I thought that that was a really fascinating discussion. I hadn't been at a police commission meeting in a while. And the reason I say that is, and it was fascinating is because both Councillor Walcott and Heather Campbell, who are police commissioner members, brought up some really interesting points towards the police. And I thought that they were both spoken down to, and there was quite a bit of acrimony. And so I think that we'll be seeing even more of that on Friday. And I do worry about the fact that Mayor Gondike is a racialized woman. Councillor Walcott is a you know the first black male councillor. Um, Heather Campbell is a black woman. And both of these and all of these people, when they are tweeting or talking about what's happening with the police, receive like vitriolic hate, like vitriolic hate. Um, I'm sure that they're getting threatened. I know that or I don't know, but I assume that like security has been like a real issue around these counselors. And then I think about the the racialized protesters who've been talking about police accountability for years and what does that what does that mean for them? Like in terms of their security, we saw in Edmonton, I think we talked about this in the last show, I can't remember, but that there's like a list of critics that the police keeps. I mean, the police have power in a way that no other institution in this country has. The fact that they are being challenged by elected officials, by you know protesters on the ground who have no uh, no means of security, that is a that's definitely an unsettling thing. And so I'm really looking to that Friday police commission hearing to see how open they are to the criticisms that they're going to receive and how thoughtful they are about the fact that the people who are speaking out against them are people who are going to be targets of hate from the people that they, that the police are seen to be um, cozying up to. We have like a few more segments that we wanted to talk about, and maybe maybe we can kind of whip through them. Councillor Jennifer Winus did bring forward a motion. She indicated that she was going to do so via a tweet thread that got quite a bit of pushback. 
in the tweet thread, the counselor seemed to compare the Black Lives Matter protests to the quote unquote freedom convoy protests, which generated quite a bit of, she was ratioed basically. Okay. Colloquially, she was ratioed. She also called for a public hearing that modus, that notice went uh, to counsel and she actually withdrew the uh, notice of motion. And a lot of the discussion around, you know, whether or not a public hearing was appropriate revolved around the fact that a, when the last public hearing was around like anti-racism, I think it lasted three days and was seen as sort of like unfair process towards all these racialized communities who came forward to tell their story. It was like a re-traumatization. And then the other critique was that it would allow these folks who are anti-vax, anti-government, anti-all these things to just go forward and, and spew their narrative as well. So so that's sort of the Counselor Wynas piece. Uh, Jeremy, Darren, do you want to comment on that? Before we get to a comment, let me just play a quick clip from Jennifer Wynas on bringing this motion forward. My motion this afternoon is... One, of bringing solution forward. We have a really contentious issue happening on the belt line, and we, we're so caught up in conflict. How are we going to find a way to de-escalate this so that Calgarians don't get hurt? Ca- councillors always ask when we get uh, elected, do we represent our ward or do we represent Calgarians as, as a whole? And right now, this is an example of where all councillors have to represent Calgarians as a whole. It's really easy to represent people that agree with you, but it's a lot harder when you don't agree with the people. And this is where we really have to dig deep as a council and find a solution through this problem. You know what? I'm the last person that you guys want to hear from on this. No. But I, 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 I genuinely feel bad for Councillor Wynas. I know, and you know what? I, uh, I have to say I was a little bit disappointed that Councillor Giancarlo Carra jumped on this like it was it was a deliberate attempt to demean or to degrade the anti-racism work that the city has done through through the Black Lives Matter, through the, the anti-racist city stuff. When you get to know Jennifer Wynas, you realize that she really just wants to do good things for the city. And maybe the way that she put it out was horribly inappropriate. I think what got lost in this was as soon as people see public hearing and BLM, they go, what the, you know, they didn't see that really what she was saying was let's consider a process where we engage these folks. Again, you know what? You see, Jeremy, you mentioned earlier that you guys are going to take heat for, for because you're the 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 racialized folks. I'm going to take heat because it sounds like I'm being being white guy apologist here, but I think that the intent of Councillor Winus's tweet and her desire for public hearing uh, was was basically because nothing's worked up to this point. Perhaps if we have a conversation we can at least put an end to the protests that are happening in the Beltline. I will say in the meeting, and this came up, uh, this came up afterwards as well, was Councilor Wynas didn't say sorry, and she should have said sorry for making that. Um, she tried to defend it. She tried to say that that's not what I meant, 
uh, you know, my words were misconstrued. I was misinterpreted. Uh, bottom line is, regardless, I think you need to make an apology because for all of those folks who were traumatized by that e that false equivalency, as it was referred to, were really offended. And, and I think that an apology was in order. But I do think that she was trying to do good in the end. Hmm. How am I going to put this without getting more backlash? Is <laughs> what I will say is when progressives, myself included, you know, emotions are high, things are going to be said that may be incorrect or misinterpreted or, or just, 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 just said in a way that it shouldn't have been. We have to be careful because there's that whole still discussion around politics versus governance. At the end of the day, Councillor Wyness is still the counselor for War Two. I'm not trying to apologize for her actions. I'm not trying to make a stance, but I'm just saying like these little things that occur, whether it was right or wrong, are going to build up over time. And to win your eight votes, you know, even in the midst of, you know, heightened racial tensions, heightened emotions, these are very important things and people will remember them. We are still humans at the end of the day. It's not like I don't have my own faults. It's not like I don't have my own biases and incorrect assumptions and, and stupid things that I say all the time as well. But I think we have to be careful when progressives complain about certain things and they don't get their way. And then we reflect back and we see like, what, what led to this moment? What led to a certain counselor, you know, who had all the you know, genuine right intentions. And then now we're just going to, you know, throw them under the bus. And it's not even been like a year into her term. So I think we, at least on the progressive side, we have to be very careful about how we deal with things because there's politics at the end, of the day, but there's also governance at the end of the day. And these counselors have to manage a whole bunch of demands and they are human and we're going to make mistakes. and. I, I think I just I just think like in the back of my mind, I just going like something else is going to happen or something is going to build up over time and we're going to lose potential allies too early on in the process. Look, I, she made a false equivalency. And to your point, Darren, no, I'm not. I'm not. I'm don't I don't say this to be harsh. I mean, she did make a false equivalency. I would have liked to see an apology. I also think that she was coming at it from a place where she was trying to bring people together. What I think really needs to happen. And, and I think I would, I don't actually don't know if council has done this and I know people are going to be like, oh my gosh, like this is such a like progressive solution, but like, honestly, anti-racism training should be mandatory for counselors so that they have an understanding of why certain comments can be harmful and why certain processes can be harmful. I don't expect, Fact that everybody knows that necessarily, but I also don't think it's fair that for a lot of a lot on this issues, both Mayor Gondek and Councillor Walcott, again, who are racialized people, which in, automatically makes them targets, have been like the face for this in a lot of ways. And I would like to see, like, I would like to see some of their non-racialized colleagues come out there in the way that, in in, in some ways, that Jennifer Winus tried to do. To be fair to her. Uh, that said, I would like to see that being done in a way that is non-harmful um, in, in discourse.
let's go into our our final segment, which is around the upcoming protests. And there is going to be, of course, another convoy on the Beltline on Saturday. A lot of people have been invited to go down to be a part of the counter-protest. I expect that that will be the biggest counter-protest that we'll see in a while. The police chief has asked people not to go down. And there is a an organization now, or I don't know if it's if an organization is the right word, but a Defend the Beltline group that has come together and they are, you know, encouraging people, I believe, to participate in the counter-protest. Tensions are heightened. The microscope will be like closer than ever this Saturday. What do you think, Darren and Jeremy? Where are we at here? Let me start off by reading. Esmahan, you mentioned that there's a Calgary Police Commission meeting. They they did put out a, a statement Here's a quote from Commissioner Cha- or Commission Chair Sean Cornett. Like City Council, we have also received hundreds of emails and phone calls from Calgarians about these protests. We completely understand the impact this is having on the residents and businesses in the Beltline and want to make it end. This is an unprecedented situation that is extremely complicated legally and from a policing perspective, but we need to find a way to stop the disruptions that are undermining many residents' ability to enjoy their homes, businesses, and community. I I, I think that sends a really, really strong signal on the part of the Calgary Police Commission. I don't know, and I think the mayor was even reluctant, the police chief was reluctant to say that there was going to be a fix for this weekend. And I think that's why the public messaging right now is, please do not come down to the Beltline. We are working on this. I don't know if that's going to have an impact. So the Defend the Beltline, actually, it's... It's not a separate group, Esmahan. I was actually quite surprised to see it on the Beltline Neighborhoods Association website. Uh, I talked with Peter Oliver about it today. He's like, yeah, we posted it today. They do want people to come down. Anybody who cares about the Beltline, they want them to come down. They say, bring a sign, bring a friend, bring a mask, bring earplugs. But he also reiterated that they do want it to be peaceful. I'm not certain what's going to happen this weekend. I fear that given larger crowds because don't don't get me wrong and and we're not we're we're not talking them we're, we're not getting their viewpoint the other side is probably equally invigorated by all of this and this may br- have them trying to draw more of their folks down to the protest so you bring increasing groups from both sides and if people don't heed the warning or not the warning, that's a really ominous word. If people don't heed the plea from the mayor or the police chief or even Councillor Wynas had said, please don't go down there on Saturday, we could end up with a really difficult situation for police. And I, and I don't imagine that it would be any better than how it turned out before. It's a difficult thing to watch because I used to live in the belt line, right? I could, I could, you know, from the videos and the photos, I could see that the, the, the apartment building that I used to, to live in, I think the longer it drags out, what's really depressing is that we're going to establish a new norm for the belt line. And, you know, 17th Ave has gone through like two, three years of traffic construction already, layered with COVID, 
layered with the downtown core as being really empty and trying to reinvigorate that area as well. Like all of these things have just culminated to something that is just really sad to see from my perspective, like as an an outsider, quote unquote, now just looking back at how vibrant that community was being able to be up to no good at shenanigans and shenanigans, you know, at the ship and anchor or, or, or doing, uh, or just, just being able to like, enjoy myself as I walk along there. Now, one of the few places where you can have that vibrancy, it's taken away, you know, you just go, were the protests worth it at the end? What, what did you get out of it? I, I just, that's just my, my kind of question to the, the people who are, going to continue down this route is you know what what was it all for at the end of the day you know you got maybe what you wanted but at what cost and I just feel really bad and and upset and and a bunch of emotions that are still you know swirling around it's just it just sucks at the end of the day just like I don't know I don't know Darren I will say that just looping back to the idea, so sorry, to the notion that there's going to be a police commission meeting on Friday for people who want to tune in, there is no public participation portion, but the commission is inviting written submissions for under 500 words. And I think it is important that if you are upset by what happened on Saturday, you take the time to put together, um, you know, put together a little bit of a written submission and send that in. I think it's, what we've seen in the last few years, maybe the last, especially the last few weeks, is that a small group of people who are very upset about something have held our capital city hostage, are holding the belt line hostage. And I think that for those of us who are, you know, who, um, how can I say this in the most polite way possible? For those of us who are sick of this tantrum, <laughs> to uh, want to make our voices heard. It, it is a time, I think, for the sort of silent majority of people to, to say that this isn't acceptable anymore. And that, um, you know, if you have feelings around what happened on Saturday with the police to make that heard as well. So definitely take a look at submitting a written submission prior to the meeting on Friday. a long, long episode today about something that I think has really upset a lot of people around the city. But thank you once again for for tuning in. There are other ways that you can talk about municipal politics. If you are so inclined, make sure to join Darren on Fridays at five o'clock on Twitter Spaces. I think that that'll be just after the police commission meeting. So what a fruitful discussion that might be. (laughs) I would make it, Darren, if I didn't have dinner plans. And you can also tweet at us on Twitter at livewire underscore DK is Darren. Jeremy's at at JZ from Calgary. And I'm at Asmahan YYC. Let us know what your thoughts are around the protest, around the police and around the opinions that we've shared. Thank you again. And uh, we will chat with you soon. Mm-hmm.